This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. John Pleadham, and I'm excited to be joined in today's Out of the Blue podcast by the other two podcasts, uh, Dr. Michael Lansbeck and Dr. Moore Sala. Today, we're going to discuss some of the topics and articles we found most interesting from the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine in 2020. So, Mike, um, 2020 has been an unusual year for critical care. Uh, we've had a lot of publications concerning COVID-19, but I've noticed COVID has noticeably been absent from some from from your podcast yeah, i know john part of the reason i chose to focus on non-covid articles is that i felt most intensivists were overloaded with covid information i know i was um and, and i didn't want to ignore all of the other scientific advances we've made this year okay so so what articles did you think were most important for critical care in 2020 well, one of the podcasts that I did earlier this year was an absolutely incredible study that was led by Dr. Emily Vale called Use of Hydrocortisone, Ascorbic Acid, and Thiamine in Adults with Septic Shock. Uh, that's the vitamin C cocktail? Uh, yes, yeah. About three years ago, Paul Merrick had published a small but very impressive before and after study of this three-drug regimen for septic patients, and uh, they observed a remarkable reduction in mortality, like about 30%. And everyone got very excited about this because vitamin C and thiamine are thought to be pretty safe. A lot of people thought, what's the harm? And they wanted to implement this therapy immediately. And some critics wanted to do a larger study that was randomized and others said it was unethical to randomize and withhold a potentially life-saving therapy. So that, that sounds remarkably familiar to 2020. Yeah, exactly. So we're seeing the same dilemma play out with COVID and unproven therapies like convalescent plasma, hydroxychloroquine, non-standard ventilation strategies, uh, even steroids before the publication of the recovery trial. And we had physicians making these exact same arguments in 2017 about vitamin C and sepsis. And now three years later, we have several interventional trials that don't demonstrate the initial benefit of vitamin C and some that suggest harm. But what's really interesting is that the study by Emily Vale and colleagues looked at physician behavior during those three years when we didn't know for certain whether or not vitamin C worked. So tell us a bit about it. So uh, first of all, this is a very high quality retrospective observational study, which is unsurprising when you look at that list of authors. Uh, and, and in this case, the fact that it's observational actually has a few strengths over randomized trials. One of the criticisms with the interventional trials is that vitamin C believers argue that it needs to be given very early in sepsis. And it can take hours to screen, consent, and randomize patients, which means a delay in therapy. So an observational study might actually be a better reflection of real world practice. Uh, anyway, this, this study looked at about 300,000 patients from almost 400 U.S. hospitals, and it looked at the rates of use of the vitamin C therapy at those study hospitals over the time of Merrick's publication. Uh, and the big spoiler alert here is that physicians started using vitamin C shortly after publication, despite being an unproven therapy. I suspect some of that behavior stems probably from peer pressure. Uh, if I have a patient who's dying in front of me and one of my colleagues is tweeting about a potential miracle cure, there's probably a obligation that a lot of us feel to consider that therapy. Yeah, I can see parallels with the current pandemic. Oh yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, 
we're all susceptible to peer pressure and irrational thinking. And Vale's study also showed that vitamin C was associated with mortality. Uh, now, again, this was not designed for uh, assessing causality, but it should still be a reminder whenever we think, what's the harm? That sometimes uh, these therapies can be associated with harm. Uh, it's possible this association could be due to confounding by indication. But as I said, this group of investigators is very sophisticated and they used quantitative bias analysis to detect whether or not confounders or other non-random errors existed in their data. So even if you don't know what the confounder is, you can still feel pretty good about whether or not a significant confounder exists. And they found uh, no evidence of a significant confounder. And I think more observational studies need to incorporate this method. John, uh, you've done three podcasts on ATS guidelines this year. What topics did they cover? Yeah, the ATS guidelines are heavily cited and are quite popular with the podcast listeners. Um, this year, I've recorded three. Uh, the first came out in January and was a discussion with doctors Nahid and Chorva uh, on the clinical practice guideline on the treatment of drug-resistant tuberculosis. Uh, I'm working on another present on the recently published guidelines on home oxygen therapy for adults with chronic lung disease, which will come out next month. And then last month, I recorded one with Robert Owens, who was the chair of the committee that published the guideline on long-term non-invasive ventilation in chronic stable hypercapnic COPD. In this guideline, chronic hypercapnic COPD was defined as patients with an FEV1 BC ratio of less than 70% and an arterial PCO2 greater than 45, not during an exacerbation. And there were five recommendations. The first was to use nocturnal non-invasive ventilation in addition to usual care. The second, that patients should undergo screening for obstructive sleep apnea before initiation of long-term non-invasive ventilation. The next was to not in initiate long-term non-invasive ventilation during admission for an acute or chronic hypercapnic respiratory failure, favoring a reassessment for non-invasive ventilation uh, two to four weeks later after resolution. And then to not use in-laboratory polysomnogram to titrate non-invasive ventilation and lastly, to adjust non-invasive ventilation to normalize the arterial PCO2. What do you think the important takeaway messages are from these guidelines? Well, there are very few interventions that have been shown to improve morbidity and mortality in COPD. So it's exciting to consider non-invasive ventilation as additional therapy for patients with stable hypercapnic COPD. The first point is that patient selected is, is very critical. These guidelines only apply to patients with exclusively COPD and not to patients with severe obesity or obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, unfortunately, COPD is often misdiagnosed in this situation in patients with severe obesity when the more correct diagnosis is obesity hyperventilation syndrome. The next point is that there are implementation barriers to consider. Not all pulmonologists and sleep physicians are comfortable with non-invasive ventilation, so additional education may be needed for clinicians and allied health staff. Initiation of non-invasive ventilation in clinical practice can be very different from initiation during research studies. And, and in these guidelines, there's one study uh, which shows that you take up to two weeks to initiate non-invasive ventilation. Now it's clear that more data are needed to guide the desired goals of treatment, and specifically how aggressively should a clinician try um, and normalize the arterial PCO2? Is a greater reduction better? And then finally, the cost of non-invasive ventilation may be a barrier to the widespread acceptance of these guidelines. In addition to the high upfront costs, there are additional long-term expenses that some healthcare systems, insurers, and patients may be unable to cover. 
Those, those are excellent points, John. Uh, Moore, what did you find interesting this year in the Blue Journal? I think there was a lot of great science in the Blue Journal this year and a lot of demonstrated progress towards developing better understandings and new therapies for lung disease. First, I think the advent of single cell RNA sequencing has been a real game changer to our understanding of lung biology. In the past, sequencing studies would be performed on whole lung tissue, uh, which, are, which is made up of many different cell types. Therefore, it was hard to know if any changes uh, with disease were due to gene expression changes or simply changes in the cellular composition of the tissue. With single cell RNA sequencing, every cell is partitioned and sequenced with its own unique barcode. So now you can identify the RNA expression profiles of each individual cell. This is powerful information that has led to the identification of new cell types and transitional states in both health and disease. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I mean, even the lay press has been talking about RNA sequencing. My, my newsfeed had just mentioned targeted therapies using CRISPR RNA sequencing. Uh, so what were some of the single cell RNA sequencing studies published in Blue uh, this year? So in the Blue Journal this year were articles published using RNA sequencing to uncover aberrant cell types in, in the lungs of patients with uh, levangioliomyomatosis. Uh, and these cells seemed identical to a cell type found in the uterus. It also led to the identification of transcriptional archetypes of sputum cells in cystic fibrosis, uh, cystic fibrosis patients, and a dendritic cell population that may drive lymphoid aggregation and disease in COPD. There were also single cell RNA sequencing studies of the SARS-CoV-2 receptors in the lung. Additionally, with all these single cell technologies, we are accruing knowledge of cell-specific changes in lung disease. So we will need targeted therapies. And in an article published in the Blue and profiled on this podcast, we saw investigators using nanoparticles to therapeutically target specific cell types in the lung, and in this case, it was endothelial cells, as a therapy. So perhaps we can, uh, we can take what we learned from the single cell technologies and generate cell-specific therapies. Mike, what else did you find important in 2020? Well, I wanted to talk about two articles that I think are related in that they both deal with blood pressure targets and septic shock. Uh, the first is by Dr. Haley Gershengorn and colleagues, and it's titled, Association of Pre-Morbid Blood Pressure with Vasopressor Infusion Duration in Patients with Shock. Uh, Dr. Gershengorn, by the way, was the senior author of that vitamin C study we just talked about. Uh, but this multi-center observational study was uh, of about 3,500 patients with shock, and they measured baseline blood pressure uh, using data from before the patient's ICU stay. And they found that patients with lower pre-morbid blood pressures had lower blood pressures while on vasopressors, and those patients received vasopressors for longer duration were more likely to die and ended up having longer hospitalizations. How likely do you think the increased mortality is just due to confounding factors? Oh, well, there probably is some uh, residual confounding. And I mean, the study authors mentioned this as well, but I think it makes a compelling argument that one size doesn't fit all. Uh, perhaps targeting 65 millimeters of mercury for every patient isn't the right approach. Maybe a patient who has at baseline low blood pressure might not need as high of a mean arterial pressure when they're in shock. Uh, perhaps those excess vasopressors are more harmful for those patients, and they might do better with a map of 55 millimeters of mercury. I, I think this paper dovetails very nicely with another paper uh, that was led by Dr. Rakshit Panwar, who's been doing some absolutely amazing work with the ANZIX group. Uh, and that study is titled Relative Hypotension and Adverse Kidney-Related Outcomes Among Critically Ill Patients with Shock, a Multicenter Perspective Cohort Study. Uh, and in that study, they looked at about 300 patients with shock and looked at their baseline blood pressures as well uh, and looked at how the patients fared during shock. Did they find similar outcomes? Uh, not exactly. The studies sound similar, but uh, they were actually looking at two different aspects of shock management. 
Uh, a simple way of putting it is one study was looking at the harms of standard blood pressure uh, targets in patients who have baseline low blood pressure. And the other study is about the harms of standard blood pressure targets in hypertensive patients. Uh, but the blood pressure only tells part of the story. Panwar's study looked at perfusion pressure, which is the difference between MAP and CVP or central venous pressure. Uh, and even more impressive is that they assessed uh, perfusion pressure uh, from pre-illness or before the hospitalization. So how exactly was that done? I imagine there aren't many outpatients who have CVP uh, assessments. Uh, you're right. They, uh, they actually used echocardiography to estimate the central venous pressure. Uh, but what I thought was interesting was that the exposure variable that they looked at was a time-weighted average mean perfusion pressure deficit, which was essentially how much and how long was a patient under perfusing compared to their own baseline. And so patients who had greater deficits in that mean perfusion pressure were more likely to develop acute kidney injury or a major adverse kidney event. Uh, what, what I find really interesting about this study is that these outcomes were associated with relative hypotension, but not absolute hypotension. Uh, my takeaway from that study is that there are some patients who are sitting around with a MAP of 70 and are still hypoperfusing, especially if their baseline MAP might be 95 millimeters of mercury. And I think this finding supports one of the secondary findings of the 2015 trial by Asfar and colleagues in the New England Journal, which found that hypertensive patients who had septic shock were less likely to receive renal replacement therapy if they targeted higher blood pressures. But taken together, these two studies seem to argue that we should consider tailoring our treatment based on baseline blood pressure. Uh, absolutely. Now, both of these studies are observational studies, so we shouldn't rush off to rewrite the guidelines just yet. But I think these studies and others all make a pretty strong argument that the next big trial in septic shock should really study a tailored approach. And I think there's always been a schism in medicine regarding the value of protocolized medicine versus tailored medicine. And if we bring this back to COVID, we've seen some of the harms that have occurred from large tidal volumes, excess administration of fluids, sedatives, paralytics, and several other therapies that have all stemmed from this idea that tailoring uh, care was necessary because the patients didn't seem to do well under standard care. And whether we're talking about allowing larger tidal volumes and compliant COVID lungs, or whether we're talking about using echo to guide fluid management and sepsis, it's unclear whether this tailored approach is more sophisticated or simply abandoning standards, uh, which is why I'm so glad that uh, the Blue Journal, as well as many other uh, investigators are asking these questions. My hope is that these studies prompt investigations that will lead to a more sophisticated and effective guideline. John, uh, this year you have recorded several podcasts on different aspects of sleep disordered breathing. What was the most interesting? In February, I did a podcast with Richard Schwab about the importance of tongue fat on the upper airway anatomy and obstructive sleep apnea severity and the impact of weight loss. But the podcast I enjoyed most was a lively discussion I had between Drs. Patel, Donovan, and Ayers and Mahotra um, one of the most, in, one of the most sort of the biggest impact of COVID um, in the spring uh, was the, the need to adhere to social distancing. And with this, most sleep laboratories abruptly shut down, dramatically changing the clinical and financial landscape for sleep medicine. Doctors Patel and, and Donovan wrote a provocative editorial in August, suggesting that COVID-19 pandemic represented an opportunity to reassess the value of polysomnography. They argued that the belief that polysomnography is necessary to diagnose and treat patients with sleep disorders relies on a variety of assumptions and biases. 
These include the untested belief that the physiological criteria are superior to clinical assessment and patient reported measures. Uh, also, these assumptions have led to healthcare providers and insurance companies to prioritize physiological measures from polysomnography over clinical assessment, resulting in restricted patient care. They argued that uh, for increased access to home sleep testing rather than polysomnography, to improve access for diagnosis and care in conditions such as obstructive sleep apnea, which may have a global prevalence of up to 1 billion people. So what are the situations when it's still important to perform polysomnography? Well, Dr. Ayers and Mahotra wrote a, a rebuttal editorial, uh, which they entitled The Baby, the Bathwater and the Polysomnogram. They argued that the, a polysomnogram provides a rich data set, which is largely ignored by a focus on one number, which is the apnea hypopnea index. They made the analogy this is like deriving the heart rate, just deriving a heart rate from an EKG and ignoring the other information. There's been a lot of recent work characterizing the different phenotypes of obstructive sleep apnea uh, from all the physiological data from a polysomnogram, uh, which may be relevant in terms of making therapeutic decisions. They also argue that obstructive sleep apnea is just one of many different sleep disorders uh, which require an accurate diagnosis. And also if you rely on patient reported outcomes, uh, there are some patients who have, have a vested interest in getting a positive diagnosis for disability reasons, and there are others that want to avoid a positive diagnosis, say if they're involved in a safety critical occupation, such as truck drivers. Those are really important points to remember, John. More, what, what else excited you about this year? Well, there were fantastic articles exploring the genetic underpinnings of common lung diseases like COPD and idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, as well as epigenetic contributions to disease severity including DNA methylation patterns in COPD patients and microRNA expression changes in asthma and pulmonary hypertension. Of course, there were studies of COVID pathogenesis. We also saw multiple articles exploring the microbiome. So as you know, humans are colonized by many microorganisms that are constantly interacting with our immune system. And we are learning that changes in that delicate balance between us and our colonizers can change and influence susceptibility to disease or disease progression. So this year, there were multiple studies exploring changes in the microbiome or metagenome, as it's sometimes referred to, in various acute and chronic lung diseases, and potentially pathologic consequences of those changes in those diseases as well. Another area that garnered significant interest was cellular senescence. You know, I tell you, I'm really fascinated by the uh, microbiome. I think it's impressive how it can affect so many aspects of our health, including even our decision-making. Uh, and I, I really like that article that uh, described the effects of uh, the microbiome on chronic hypersensitivity pneumonitis and uh, IPF and how the microbiomes contributed to that disease. Uh, really fascinating. Uh, but, but you had mentioned cellular senescence. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about that? So cellular senescence is a cell fate that frequently occurs in response to cellular stress, like oxidative stress or DNA damage. Senescent cells accumulate with age and, and can be found with increased frequency in, in lung diseases. These cells don't divide, but can secrete lots of pro-inflammatory and or pro-fibrotic mediators. And while they can be beneficial in certain contexts, they are increasingly implicated in disease pathogenesis. So this year we saw nice papers in the blue journal demonstrating type two alveolar epithelial senescence as an important driver of lung fibrosis. And another study that we featured on this podcast looking at the role of endoplasmic reticular stress as a cause of epithelial senescence and disease pathogenesis in IPF. There were also studies demonstrating that if you inhibit cellular senescence, you can actually promote alveolar regeneration after early life injury. And so maybe cellular senescence is a new, a new therapeutic target to treat some of these lung diseases. 
Well, it certainly seems promising. Uh, are, are there any other novel therapeutic targets that you wanted to talk about? Uh, yeah, absolutely. There were, there were numerous novel targets that were described in the Blue Journal this year. We profiled an article in the podcast that evaluated the role of mesenchymal wind signaling in the pathogenesis of bronchopulmonary dysplasia. Other studies evaluated desmoplakin in both IPF and COPD. And in pulmonary hypertension, there were studies evaluating potential therapeutic targets such as hypoxia-inducible factor proteins and novel long non-coding RNAs. And, and so this represents only a small sampling of the great science in the Blue Journal this year. Thinking back on these studies, it gives me a lot of hope for the future. Well, thank you. Those are our highlights from 2020. I'd like to thank Dr. Lansper and Sala for joining me today. To the listener, to read the articles discussed in this podcast, please visit the podcast homepage at atsjournals.org. To listen to more episodes of Out of the Blue, visit our page on iTunes or Google Play. You can also subscribe to stay updated whenever new episodes are available. Thanks for listening and have a great day.